Bible study this morning in Genesis, or not Genesis, Galatians chapter 3. We will end up in Genesis chapter 3 and verse, uh, and, and some of the other chapters. So as usual, I'm using my old school iPad technology here. I used the Note app while I was taking notes this week. It's always good for a laugh. You know, I really do know how to use this thing. But you know what? I thought of a very spiritual reason this week. <laughs> Don't roll your eyes, Ronnie. I thought of a really spiritual reason to write notes on this because I, I want to point something out. Us taking notes and taping them to an iPad, or me doing that, you guys would never do that, but me taking notes and taping them to an iPad is like trying to live the Christian life not using all the capabilities that we've been given. It's like trying to use an iPad with paper tape to it. Many times as Christians, we're down, we're depressed, we feel like we can't do it on our own, and we're grasping for straws. How in the world can I live for Jesus? I don't have time. I don't have the ability. I don't have the knowledge. I don't know what Scripture says I'm supposed to be doing. And we're so bummed out about that, and yet what God has given us, we're going to talk about this morning, is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus said, would lead us into all truth and who would give us and teach us whatever we would need. He would recall to us at just the right moments the things that Jesus said to his disciples and said to us. And so uh, in many ways, it's kind of like doing this very thing. It's, it's using this super awesome piece of technology that costs way too much for the size of it and not using all the capabilities that we've been given in this little box. And so we need to be careful as Christians that we uh, really tap into the Word of God so that we can be instructed on how to use this thing. And uh, not so much this thing, but use this thing that God has redeemed, you know. And so here we are in Galatians chapter 3, and Paul is writing to the Galatians. Chapter 1 and 2, he wrote to them, basically, based upon his own personal testimony, he explained the grace that God has given us and the gospel. You know, the true gospel. And he's corrected many people. He's been dealing with some issues. Last week we looked at how Paul corrected Peter. He said, hey Peter, you know, you were walking with the Lord. You were sharing the gospel with Gentiles. You were shown in Acts chapter 10 that we're no longer called to just go to the Jews, but also the gospel is to, to save the Gentiles according to God's plan. And, and here you are, you're with this mixed multitude of people, and you won't hang out with the Gentiles anymore because in many ways you're like, hey, you know, uh, I kind of care more about what the, these Jews think than I care about what the Gentiles think. And really it all comes down to he cared more about what anybody thought other than the Lord. The Lord said there's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. It's We're all one in Christ. We've been given the same Holy Spirit. And so we... All are treated equally by the Lord, and so we ought to be treated equally by his followers. And so in Galatians chapter 3, he continues in chapter 3 and 4 with a section that I would call a teaching section. He's going to lay down some doctrine. Now, doctrine is just a fancy word that we have that really just means teaching. Things that we can learn, things that we can anchor our trust in, things that will always be true from God's word. And then in chapter 5 and 6, what he's going to give us is basically a practical section. He's going to say, now that you know this, here's how to live it out. And that's what typically we're looking for, right? I want to read the Word of God. 
I want to know about him. And then I want to, don't stop at just knowing about him or believing in him, but also take what you believe about him and live them out in your daily life. Because actions imply a belief. Not what you say, not what you tell people, but what you do. It implies what you trust in, right? I can say I trust my neighbor, but then when I, and this is kind of a weird example, but I can say I trust my neighbor, and then at the same time, I can make sure I lock my doors before I leave for the weekend, right? Do you really trust him? Well, that's a whole other issue, but my point is, is that actions imply a belief. And so in chapter 3, Paul continues, and I believe chapter 3 and 4 are very strongly written. Paul's not pulling any punches. He's being very clear. He wants them to understand what it, the point that he's trying to make. So he says what we would all say to our friends, right? Oh, foolish Galatians, right? Now, didn't Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, uh, beware, be careful of calling your neighbor a fool? Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, I'm just going to go there real quick. You, can, you don't have to. I'm not going to stay there, but he says... Uh, you. In verse 22, he says, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, which means you fool, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. So is Paul breaking what Jesus said here? Don't call someone a fool? Well, he's saying that in the context of saying that you hate them, calling someone foolish and saying, hey, you're an idiot, you know, or, or whatever you might say to someone. Paul's not saying that to them. In Galatians chapter 3, here's what he's saying. Foolish Galatians, and that word there is a different word than Jesus uses in Matthew 5. This word actually means to be spiritually dull. He's talking to a group of believers. These are brethren. They are They've been born again, according to John chapter 3. Jesus said to Nicodemus, he said, you will not see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again of water, physical birth, and the Spirit. You've been born again to this living hope. So God has infused in you, he's given you new life, everlasting, abundant life. And so he says to them, foolish Galatians, in other words, you are spiritually alive, but you're spiritually dull. In Proverbs, there's a verse that says, just as one man's countenance sharpens another, just like iron sharpening iron. We take two swords that are made out of the same material and we go, shing! We watched uh, Night at the the Museum last night, the the first one. And in there, it's, uh, who's the the Mongol guy? Um, It's okay, I can't think of him. He, he basically is this guy that used to go and pillage people. But he's got this big sword and he, you find him taking a rock and... Huh? Attila the Hun. Thank you, Dana. You just saved me. Attila the Hun, he's sharpening his sword on a rock. And in the same way, they would take their swords and they would rub them together and sharpen one another if they didn't have a rock. And so we can sharpen one another by our countenance. So if they're spiritually dull, doesn't mean that they're spiritually not alive. He's saying that you're spiritually unprepared to walk with Jesus. You've been saved, but you haven't grown. You haven't come to maturity. You're not prepared to be used as a good, sharp weapon. If you've got an axe and it's got a dull blade on it, what good is it? It's not good at all for anything. It's not good at splitting anything except your back. 
You know, you go to use that thing and you're just whacking away. You're not getting anything accomplished. And Jesus has called us to a living hope and he sharpens us. He quickens us as we prepare ourselves and as we learn his word, we're prepared to be used by him. And so he's saying, oh, foolish Galatians, oh, spiritually dull Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? He says, in the context, remember he's saying that you don't need to follow the law to add to your salvation. You don't need Jesus to save you and be circumcised and keep the Sabbath and you name it. You don't have to add to your salvation. When Jesus said it was finished, he finished it. Your salvation is complete just by trusting in Jesus. That's why Jesus on the cross could say to the, the man who was next to him, Today you will be with me in paradise because that man by faith said what? He said, Jesus, when you enter into your kingdom, remember me. And so Jesus said, hey, this man's trusting me. Today you will be with me in paradise. That's the promise. So Jesus said that to him. And in the same way, if we didn't confess our sins and, and pour out, hey, Lord, I want you to be my salvation I want to receive the gift of salvation from you. We did that on our deathbed with our last breath. It's good enough. By faith. By grace, through faith. And so here we have these foolish Galatians, he says. He says this. He asked them a question. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? How many of you guys remember the show, Bewitched? You know, it's kind of fascinating. She would just move her little nose. Next thing you know, like things change. She was doing all these magic and tricks and stuff, and it's, most of the time it caused more problem than help, right? Well, in the same way, he's saying, who has bewitched you? And we think of that word and we think of that show, but in all reality, what he's saying is, who has fascinated you and maligned you? To malign means to misalign, to change something that was straight and bend it. So who has fascinated you that you should not obey the truth. What fascinates you that keeps you from obeying the truth? We've got to ask this question because we may not have the problem the Galatians do. We've been saved by grace through faith. We trust in Jesus. But there may be some things in our lives, just like the Galatians, that cause us to be fascinated. Maybe they, they're things that we see, things that we hear, we give ear to, uh, people that we hang around with hobbies that we aren't willing to let go of? What are the things that fascinate you and cause you to disobey the truth? For the Galatians, it was the Judaizers. It was the people that came along and said, hey, yeah, you're saved, but you need to do this, this, and this. Here's a set of rules that if you follow them, God will be pleased with you. And so because of that, they preached this as if it was part of the gospel, and it wasn't. We cannot add anything to our salvation. But he says, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? And he's talking to them still, and he says, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. And he's talking about the crucifixion because Jesus was put to death for one reason, for the shedding of blood, for the forgiveness of our sins. That was the reason. 
it's interesting to me because if you have a sacrifice for your sins, your sins can only be sacrificed for on, by someone else if that person is sinless, just like the spotless lamb that they would sacrifice in the Old Testament. I was just reading this week in the end of Matthew, and do you know what Pontius Pilate had to say about Jesus? He washed his hands. He said, my guilt is free from me of this just man. Just. Justification. Just as if I'd never sinned. Jesus was justified completely. Even the people that did not know who he was knew he was innocent. That's amazing to me. How many people could have that said of them? Hey, you know, I don't know him very much, but I can tell he's innocent. Now, we hear people all the time say, well, he's a pretty good boy. But they're overlooking all kinds of stuff. They have to be. Because not one of us has lived a perfect, spotless, sinless life. You know, so here's the question. (laughs) Wasn't Jesus clearly portrayed among you as crucified? He says this only, verse 2, I want to learn from you. He says, let me ask you a question. That's my translation. Let me ask you a question. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or did you receive the Spirit by the hearing of faith? He says, are you so foolish? Are you so without knowledge? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? The word suffered there means experienced. Have you experienced so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? We've preached to you the truth, that Jesus is the only one who can set you free. Why would you think you could change that at all? Why would you think that some people could be set more free than others? And so he says that, and he says this. He says, did you receive the Spirit according to the works of the law or the hearing of faith. So that makes me hearken back to what we studied the last couple of weeks. We've turned to Galatians, or Acts chapter 10. Because in Acts chapter 10, we have Peter who was hungry. He was praying on the rooftop in the cool of the night. And as he was praying, he was hungry. And the Lord said to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And we talked about how basically this blanket he got this vision of a blanket kind of like a picnic blanket with all these unclean animals on it and so peter was like i can't not so lord i can't eat any of those things i've never eaten them from my youth because it was unlawful for a jewish man to eat these certain animals there's camels probably you know some sort of shellfish all these things that god called them to not eat and what Peter said was, I can't eat those things. And then the Lord said to him, do not call unclean the things that I have called clean. And what we find out later is that he was talking about the Gentiles. He wasn't talking about food. It wasn't about food. He was telling them about these people that were not Jewish by faith, but they were Gentiles. They were unclean according to the Jews. But what we find out is that right after that, God tells him, there's a man who sent out some people to you. By the name of Cornelius, he sent this this crew of guys to come and get you. And when they come, I want you to go with them. So then after that, Peter goes with them, and he goes to a house of Cornelius, who is what we would call a God-fearer. In those days, there were Gentiles who had seen what God had done in the nation of Israel. He had a real fear of the God of Israel, and they would fear him. They would send offerings. They would do all these things, and what... Basically, God was sending 
Peter to do was to go and speak to this household because though they had faith in God, their faith was incomplete because they did not yet hear the gospel of Jesus, what Jesus had done. And so he sent them and Peter went with him to Cornelius' household. So it says there in verse 34 of Acts chapter 10 that Peter opened his mouth and said this, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. In other words, that he treats all people equal. Verse 35, But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, that he is Lord of all, that word you know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. So he, he tells basically everything that happened in the life of Jesus, and then the Jews killed him on a tree. And then it says, verse 40, Him, speaking of Jesus, God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So we are witnesses, eyewitnesses, not secondhand, not he said or she said, but we saw it. So he's just telling this to these Gentiles. And then it says in verse 42, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, Whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. And that's interesting because as a Jew, he knew the Old Testament that in Leviticus, it says without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission or removal or forgiveness of the account, the debt of sin. There had to be bloodshed for sin to be forgiven and removed. And verse 44 says this, and this is where I was getting to. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were blown away. They were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And then Peter answered. Here's the conclusion he drew from this instance. He said, Can anyone forbid water? that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just like us. He said, just like us Jews, we've also received the Holy Spirit. Remember the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? These Gentiles have also received the Holy Spirit just like us. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they asked him to stay a few days. And so the Holy Spirit was the promise of the Father. He said, I, it's sad for you, I know, that I'm going to be crucified, that I'm going to die, I'm going to resurrect, but then I'm going to go to the Father, but I'm not leaving you as orphans. And so, in, um, I wrote down some verses, I thought, speaking of the Holy Spirit, 
Oh, there it is. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, and Mark chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, and then in Luke chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, Jesus came up to John. Actually, John was baptizing in the wilderness, okay? He was the forerunner of Jesus. He prepared the way for Jesus to come. And when everyone was coming to him, they said, hey, you know, you, you've got this kind of crazy ministry. All these people are coming to you. You're baptizing them. Like, are you the Messiah that the scriptures have told us about? And John said, there is one coming after me who I am not worthy to remove his shoes. And guess what? I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to give the very presence of God to be living in you and give you power over sin and death. You see, the Holy Spirit is a promise that God gave us through John the Baptist, through the Old Testament, and then also Jesus spoke of it in John chapter 7, verse 37. John 7, verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, at the, um, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning this, the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the Holy Spirit would come upon those and fill the, those who believed in Jesus. So then turn to John 14, because there in John chapter 14, verse uh, 15, Jesus speaking again, he said, If you love me, then keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. Notice that the helper word is actually uh, capitalized. That he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Notice it says there, the world meaning the world and its system, those who do not believe in Jesus, those who are not in the family of God, cannot receive the spirit of truth. But it says, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you later. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. So if anyone receives the spirit of God, it's a sign that God is pleased with them, that he has given them this promise. So no one can receive the Spirit of God unless they've been born again. And so Peter's looking at this, seeing all these Gentiles receive the Spirit, remembering what Jesus said and going, these guys are now believers. God's granted salvation to the Gentiles. And so my point in going through all that is when he says that, have, he asked them the question, have you received the Spirit by faith or through following the law? He's thinking back to Acts chapter 10 where they couldn't have received the Spirit because they followed the law because they didn't know it. They didn't live in Israel. They didn't hear the Old Testament prophets. They, they just knew that they believed in God and they wanted to follow Him. And then God, because He's gracious and He loves them, sent Peter there to explain to them that they don't have to feel like they're separated because of they're not Jewish anymore 
because God has torn the veil. He's opened up the presence of God to everyone who believes in Jesus. We come to God the Father. We pray to him because of all that Jesus has done. We have a relationship with God because all that Jesus has done on our behalf. And so back in Galatians chapter 3, he says, have you, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Well, that's a rhetorical question for them to go, oh, we didn't receive it because of anything we did. We received it because God granted it to us because we believed in him by faith. It was God's grace that gave us the faith even to believe that. Are you so foolish, he says, your relationship with God began in the Spirit. Are you now being brought to maturity by these works of the flesh? So the works of the flesh, he's not talking about our skin. He's talking about our sinful nature. I don't know about you guys, but when I got saved, I still had a lot of junk that God was trying to rip from me and remove. Fleshly appetites, behaviors, uh, patterns, habits, whatever you want to call them. Sin. And God saved me before I stopped doing all those things. But as I continued to mature, it was not a fleshly work. It wasn't me using my, my sinful nature to get better at following God, trying to do it by my own deeds. You know, Isaiah actually writes that our righteousness in the sight of God, everything that we can do to try to please Him on our own without His help, is like filthy rags. It's, it's, not, it's not even pleasing to him at all. Filthy rags, forgive me, the translation is like a dirty cloth, a, a menstrual cloth. That's how nasty it is to the Lord. And so when God says that all of your righteous deeds in my sight are filthy, they're, they're obscene to me, they're, they're unspeakable. We don't talk about those things. What he's saying is if you trust in anything other than what Jesus has done, which I don't know about you guys, but when I think about what I just said, and of course you're recoiling inside going, why did he even say that? That's gross. But then think about, have you ever watched The Passion of the Christ? Have you ever watched Jesus be beaten and bloodied and his flesh torn off of his back? I don't know about you guys, but that causes me to recoil as well. That's what our sin causes. When it conceives and comes to full birth and growth, it brings forth death. Now, it can be our death, or we can trust in the death of Jesus to make it right. It's obscene. God turned his face away from Jesus during that time because he cannot look upon sin. Jesus took the sin of the whole world on himself that we might receive the forgiveness because our sins were judged on Jesus Christ. So verse 4 through 9, let's uh, go on. He says, have you suffered so many things in vain, verse 4, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you, verse 5, and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So it's interesting because he calls upon their experience in verse 1 through 4, which is good. They, they can perceive that. They can see what has taken place. He's asking them questions about their own salvation. Did it take place because you were following a set of rules? Or did it take place because you believed in Jesus? It's that simple. I took a lot longer to say that, but that's what he's saying. But then, right after that, we always need to make sure that we judge our experiences based on what the Word of God says, not judge the Word of God based on what we've experienced. All too often we get that backwards. 
If you've experienced something, always look to the Word of God and say, hey, is this something of the Lord or not? Or is it just a, I had a bad burrito and I had a weird dream? And you've got to be careful, right? Because we experience things and our emotions get involved. We always need an objective place to look from. The truth doesn't change. And so he goes on and gives an example of Abraham. It's interesting to me he uses Abraham because these Judaizers, they were basically saying, hey, we're sons of Abraham. We're descendants of his. He had God's favor because he did X, Y, and Z. But they forgot very quickly that when Abraham believed God, it was before the law of Moses was ever given. It couldn't have been according to all the things they checked off by following the rules because the rules weren't written yet. It makes no sense. It'd be like saying, I was part of the United States and I've always followed all the laws. When they first got here, there were no laws set up. They came here and they had to start fresh. And so Abraham was the same way. Verse 6, well, verse 5, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And then he gives an example of the hearing of faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that the gospel to Abraham beforehand, excuse me, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you, Abraham, all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So that's why I call our message this morning, Believing Abraham, because the question is, do you believe the same thing that Abraham believed? So in in Genesis chapter 15, I want to go back there, because we we really got to be careful that we're referencing and knowing what he's talking about. Genesis 15. says there, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Now remember, Abraham was a Gentile before he was ever of the promise of God, the the covenant people of God. He was of a family of idol worshipers and idol makers. His dad made idols. They would worship these blocks of wood and these pieces of things and these foreign gods and all these things. And so When God called Abraham, it wasn't because Abraham was a great guy or because he was from a faithful family. He called Abraham out of a dark culture. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. He said, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? So then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So Abram's talking about the story, hopefully, that you remember about Abram and Sarah. And they were both older people. They had wanted to have children, and they were not able. And so they had committed their lives to following the Lord, but there were still no, no descendants. And so Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring, physical offspring from our marriage. 
Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. He's talking about Eleazar, who is his servant. So since they didn't have children, the next of kin would be basically this man that serves them. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And so, of course, he would go outside his tent, look up at the sky and go, wow. And maybe even try a couple times. And I'll be able to count them. I mean, have you guys ever gone out to see if you could count the stars? They're innumerable. We don't have the time for that. The amount of stars that they've estimated now is so high, if you counted one every second, you wouldn't be able to do it in your lifetime. So what he's saying is, you can't count the stars, (laughs) and that's how many there are. He says, um, so shall your descendants be. He's saying, you won't be able to number your descendants. Well, how can he have descendants without a child, right? Even if he had a, a female or a male child, he, he can't have any descendants without offspring. And he believed in the Lord. This is what Abram did. God told him this mighty thing. Abram's got no kids. He's getting older. He's not a spring chicken anymore. And the Lord says, I'm going to give you so many descendants that you can't count them. And it says there, this amazing thing, Abram believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. That accounting something to someone means that he imputed it. It's an accounting term that means he deposited it, he accounted for him to have an account full of faith. And so, He believed in the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Once again, he's questioning, Lord, you promised this thing. How will I know if you're going to fulfill it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer. Can you imagine? Bring me a three-year-old heifer. Okay, And then he says, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. You guys have all got those things, right? Can you imagine you're talking to the Lord? Well, he's not asking Abram for something he doesn't have. He's asking him for something that he knows Abram has. So Abram brings these things, and then he brought all these to him, to the Lord, and cut them in two down the middle and placed each opposite the other. Well, that's weird. If you guys ever read Genesis and saw some of these passages, you're like, what? Why? This is kind of odd. You know, this is a weird God. So basically what Abram has done is he's cut these animals in half. I don't know how he did it, you know, but he lays them in half and he's doing something that was common in that day. When you made a covenant with someone, you would set it and then you would walk between it with that person and you would say, if either one of us break this, so shall we be like these animals here. And break them in half, Right? That's kind of a stiff promise. It's like, you know, we're blood brothers. You know, kids do that in the old movies. They'd cut themselves in their hands and they would, it was before they realized that there could be communicable diseases and all that kind of stuff. But my point is, is that they would make a promise that cost them to take these animals and cut them up. The goat, the female goat produced milk. The heifer produced either work or meat on the table. And then there were these other animals that they sacrificed. And basically, when they killed them, it says there that what Abraham did is he brought the sacrifice. And when the sun was going down, verse 12, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, Abram. 
And then it says, behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. So he cuts these animals in half. He lays them out in the field. And then, of course, what happens when there's a dead animal laying in the field? There's vultures. So all day long, until it gets dark out, Abram's out there trying to keep the vultures away. He's trying to, scram, get off of here. He's playing scarecrow. And then in the meantime, it gets about dark time, dark, and he fell into a deep sleep. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land. The Lord starts revealing all these things to him. They're going to be strangers in a distant land that is not theirs. And will, they will serve those strangers and they will afflict them for 400 years. And we know from scripture that's what happened. Abram's descendants went to Egypt and they were slaves for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Think about Pharaoh and Moses and all the plagues. And then afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. And as for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God's revealing all these truths to Abram. And it came to pass when the sun went down, it was dark. Behold, there appeared a smoking oven, a burning torch that passed between the pieces. So, and then it says, On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Tur termites, the Canaanites. I'm just kidding. I threw that in there. The Girgashites and the Jebusites. So all these people that live in this land, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to take it from them. It's my land. I'm going to give it to you. But what I want you to notice, the reason I went through this whole passage was when God made this promise, what was Abram doing? He's sleeping. He wasn't doing anything. Who passed between the animals and made the covenant? God did. So God made the promise, Abraham just believed it. He didn't even walk through the pieces. He didn't even do his part. He doesn't have to hold up his end of the bargain because God made the bargain. He didn't need Abram. God promised Abram, and therefore it would, God doesn't lie, he can't. And so our salvation is the same way. Our salvation is just like the deliverance, just like God's saying, hey, Abram, all this stuff's going to take place. Your descendants are going to be as many as the seashore, the sand on the sea, as many as the stars in the sky. And guess what? For 400 years, they're going to be slaves. Wow, that's not in my Bible promise book. But then God said, I'm going to deliver them. And I'm going to, fourth generation, they're going to come back to this land and they're going to inherit it because I said so. So in the same way, God's promises to us are not based upon what we can do. Many times we're more like the disciples who when they went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray that they wouldn't enter into temptation, what did they do? Jesus prayed. He sweat great drops of blood. He was in great distress. And his disciples, the men who knew him personally, what did they do? They fell asleep. Many times God makes us promises. He says, I'm going to do this. I will be faithful. And, you, and we fall asleep. And many times we get down because we didn't hold up our end of the bargain. Here's what legalism does. It says, if I do this, 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 and this, then God will be pleased, right? But many times we make all those promises and all we can do is fall asleep because we're weak. 
And then we're all down and we think God doesn't love us anymore. But guess what? It wasn't based upon what we did. Our salvation is complete in Jesus Christ. It's finished. So, I spent way more time on that than I planned on. But let me close with Genesis, or excuse me, back in Galatians. It says, In you all the nations shall be blessed, so then those who are of faith are blessed with the believing Abraham. There's a difference I want to point out here between the descendants of Abraham that believe in Jesus and the descendants of Abraham who are just the covenant people of God. They keep a, a section of laws and we believe by faith because of the faith of Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. He says, if you're under the law and you're trying to earn your salvation, that's fine. But here's what you got to realize. There's a curse for everyone who does not continue in all things. So say there's a group of people. They're called Messianic Jews. They celebrate the feasts, and yet they believe in Jesus. That's fine that they celebrate the feast, but they don't need to look at those celebration of feasts as fulfilling the law so they can earn their salvation. Because if you keep one iota of the law and you're trusting in that for your salvation, you have to keep it all. You don't get to just go like a smorgasbord and go, like, I like this, and I like this thing, and I like this thing. That's what they were doing. I like the way that they, we're supposed to wash our hands, and I like the way that we're supposed to be circumcised. And, but no, you have to keep it all. And if you don't, and that's your salvation, then you're done. You're toast. That's a curse. It's not a blessing. That's the bad news. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just, he says, quoting from Genesis, where we just read in Genesis chapter 15, the just shall live by faith, just like Abraham. And it's also quoted in Habakkuk. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He's talking about Jesus being crucified. He was cursed. In those days, they wouldn't crucify someone. That was something that the Romans did. But here's what happens. If someone would break the law and they deserved to be stoned to death, they would stone them to death. But in severe cases where something they needed to make an example of, they would stone the person to death and then they would hang them from a tree as an example. And everybody would walk by and they go, what did he do? And then people that are standing there would go, well, he did this, this, and this. Oh, well, I'm never going to do that. But in this case, Jesus was killed on the tree. He wasn't just cursed. He was cursed with a curse on top of that. So he says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, quoting from Deuteronomy, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So, there are two types of religion in the world. And all world religions are summed up in these two types of religion. Religions based on man's accomplishment and religions based on divine accomplishment. Man's works, divine accomplishment. Look all over the world, look at any religion you want to, compare them. One's based upon what man can do, one's based upon what God has done. <clears throat> Abraham believed in the one that God had done. 
So verse 10 through 12, we went through. Christ, verse 13, has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Do you know what the word redeemed means? It means to be bought out of slavery. To be bought out of slavery. Now, if you've been, there, there are many who have been bought out of slavery to go to another slavery. That's what those who had believed in Jesus and went back to the law had done. They were bought out of slavery, they were set free, and then they were put back into bondage by these Judaizers. But we have a new hope. We have a living hope. We've been bought out of slavery, not so that we can go back into the law, but so that we can stay out of slavery. When God promised he would give the Holy Spirit to all those who would believe in him by faith, we read those verses in John, the promise of the Holy Spirit that was given to us, we were redeemed, bought out of slavery. What were we in slavery to? Not the Egyptians, right? That's different. We were spiritually enslaved by our sinful nature, by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But the difference between us and those who do not have the Spirit of God is that those who have the Spirit of God have been set free and they've been given the power to say no to sin. There's no more excuses. If you sin as a believer with the Holy Spirit, it's because you okayed it. It's because you did it knowingly. But as a believer, we have the ability to ask for forgiveness, for cleansing, and we also have the ability to, whether you're willing to call upon it or not, to obey God rather than be fascinated and drawn away from obeying the truth. That's the good news. And so I want to read this. This is the uh, verse 13 and 14. If you ever want to sum the gospel up to somebody, this is it. Christ has redeemed us, or Christ has bought us back from slavery. We were sold to sin from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He's bought us back. He's redeemed us. He's taken away the curse of the law. Verse 14 for this reason, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. Free gift. So let me ask you, are you living in victory over sin? Or are you stuck in the same old ruts? For years, as a believer, I was caught up in sin. God still loved me. He still convicted me. I was miserable. But he kept reminding me, I've given you the ability to be an overcomer by my spirit. Trust me. Don't let the world fascinate you. Don't let the world draw you away from obeying the truth. It'll happen so subtly that you'll just let it happen. Read your Bible. Do it not because you have to. Do it because in this word is the ability. God's given us the truth that will set us free. Spend time in prayer about it. Wrestle with God. Ask him, I don't get it. Help me to get it. I want to be set free. Fellowship with one another. Share your story. Where were you before Christ? Where are you with Christ? Where do you think the Lord's taken you? And tell the story as many times as you can so you're not tempted to go back to try to earn God's favor. And then serve the Lord in everything that you do. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be Billy Graham. You don't have to go out 
and shove pe- Jesus down people's throats. Just tell your story. This is where I was. This is where God brought me. This is why I have hope. You can have it too. Ronnie was telling me at the baseball game, he was talking to a guy, and the guy said, I'm too far gone. I'm too far gone. I can't be saved. And then the very next morning, I was reading in the Word, and God revealed to me through a scripture, basically, that when Jesus leaves the 99 to grab the one, he's more pleased when that one that was lost is found than he is with the 99. He still loves the 99, but he rejoices greatly over those who have been separated from him and have been brought back, who have been redeemed. There's grace in that, not the law. So we're going to pray. We're going to take communion this morning. I know typically I have everybody come up. But in Matthew chapter 26 um, is where I'm going to be reading from. I'm going to have Ronnie and Richard come up. Uh, they're going to hand out the elements. You guys do it however you feel it's going to work the best. You know, we can't really hand it down the rows because there's kind of broken spots in the rows, however you want to do it. But uh, we're going to take the elements. And we take the elements because we remember that these elements, these symbols, symbolize the bread of life, Jesus himself, and the blood of Christ that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. We didn't do anything to earn it. And what I want you to do, we're going to sing a song. These guys are going to hand out the elements. I want you to spend time just thinking about where you were before Christ, how you got to where you are now, if you're where you're supposed to be, that is. If you're not where you're supposed to be, ask the Lord to bring you where you're supposed to be. Maybe this morning he's calling out to you, you need to just go ahead and give your life over to me. I want to save you. I want to give you new birth. I want to pour out my spirit upon you. And then... I want you to look forward and ask the Lord, hey, what do you want to do with me? And then, whether there's anything like that or not, look forward to the hope that we have. You know, Miss Kay is on with the Lord. I was thinking about that this morning. It's not really come to pass that I've really thought that way yet because I still remember seeing her the day that she passed. And I've also, we've not had a memorial or a service. But the truth is that once she was absent from the body, she's present with the Lord. There's hope in that. Because every single one of us, is gonna, we're going to pass. We're going to die. We don't like to think about it. But in all reality, that's okay. We have a living hope. And so we're going to sing a song. And then we'll do communion.